When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The intention is not to take down the bill. The intention is to make the bill better. What Republican leaders have put forth is truly shameful. But Republicans believe we have a responsibility to act, and we are, for our constituents, for our states, and for our country. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about Donald Trump, the president who really wants to be on the cover of Time magazine again. I'm Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's show. Last week, we spoke about the Better Care Reconciliation Act, the Senate's attempt at health care reform. We spoke about the damage this bill will do to Medicaid and other programs for poor and low-income Americans, and how it represents a fundamental attack on the idea of social insurance, an idea, it should be said, that Donald Trump endorsed as a candidate for president. This week, I want to take a break from Washington and turn our attention to those communities that may suffer most under Trump care, Black Americans in particular. For most of this country's history, Black Americans have lived outside of the healthcare system. Jim Crow segregated hospitals as well as water fountains, and countless Black people lacked access to anything close to decent medical care. Even today, Black Americans are least likely to be insured, most likely to face bad health outcomes, least likely to have access to decent facilities, and still discriminated against within the system in ways subtle and explicit. The Affordable Care Act didn't fix this, but by expanding Medicaid and other services, it helped ameliorate some of the worst. And you can imagine a bill that tried to build on this, closing the gaps in coverage and expanding services for an even larger pool of people. But that's not what we have. Instead, we have a proposal that would reverse this progress and deal a terrible blow to those communities and others that still suffer from unequal access to health care. For as much as we focus on the drama of politics, we must remember that actual lives are at stake. And nowhere is that more clear than this fight over Trump care. Our guest today to talk about health care and civil rights is Van Newkirk, a writer for The Atlantic magazine who covers these issues and everything in between. Hey, Van, welcome back to Trumpcast. Uh, thanks for having me again. So let's just jump right into it. You have a really great feature called The Fight for Healthcare Has Always Been About Civil Rights. And rather than me uh, summarizing it for the audience, how about you summarize it for the audience and kind of take us through your argument and, and what you're trying to illustrate? Okay. So what I'm doing here is uh, with that piece, um, I am breaking down two different things. One is how the history of American healthcare has been so tied to race, uh, how it developed along lines, you know, the system we know, which is private, shored up by some charity and uh, public insurance, that fractured system actually is an artifact of our racial history. So uh, back in the early 1900s, back, back in the early 1900s, when modern medicine was becoming a thing, when modern hospital systems were becoming a thing, it, it didn't make sense, especially in the South, uh, to create, say, a national guarantee for health care uh, when your whole goal of, of your state policy of Jim Crow was to exclude certain people from guaranteed 
rights, from mandated rights. Uh, and, and also, in response to that, uh, one of the earliest and most consistent uh, proponents for single payer, for universal health care, uh, for what became Medicare, Medicaid, and then eventually what became Obamacare was actually members of the civil rights movement, black activists, and people directly affected by that segregated system. Uh, and so I laid that out in, in that piece. And uh, I think really looking forward, looking at this new bill coming through the Senate, we really have to consider the effects, both the effects on people of color and sort of what animates such a strong response against universal health care, the idea. One thing I really appreciated about the piece was just how much you drew connections and, and relationships that I, I sort of I get to recognize but never put the pieces together. So, for example, um, with regards to like the late 19th century, you kind of draw a brief comparison to Germany, which at that time was beginning its its sort of experiment in into social insurance under Otto uh, Otto von Bismarck. And you kind of let the reader kind of draw the conclusion, right, that the key difference between Germany and the United States uh, as far as the construction of a health system uh, and and really other countries too, since this these ideas were kind of in broad circulation across the Western world at the time, is as you as you just said, um, our our racial history, our racial hierarchy, and the the actual policies of states to keep blacks and whites separate. And you you make this other observation, which kind of completely blew my mind, that when thinking about desegregation in the '60s, Medicare and Medicaid are really an important part of that story. Right. Uh, and that's one thing. It's interesting hearing doctors, especially members of the AMA now, uh, responding to the piece, because I don't think it's it's something that's broadly known. So with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, that was what we consider to be the official end of of the segregation, the, the actual de jure segregation in private institutions in the South. But actually, that law didn't quite go as far as binding, say, hospitals. And actually, there was no law until Obamacare binding doctors' groups, uh, for example. But what Medicare did, it was a complementary piece. It actually, in providing a universal benefit uh, for older people that reach, reaches every hospital, there's no hospital that doesn't you know, have some type of Medicare funding, it basically binds every single hospital system in the country, almost every single provider in the country, with federal money, which actually places it all of them squarely under the Civil Rights Act. So it's in the largest remaining segregated sector in America, Medicare and Medicaid were the only ways, and still are really, uh, the only ways by which those institutions are bound to not discriminate. And so to to go back to what you should have ended on, Earlier, um, thinking about the resistance to universal health care, you kind of you can't avoid the racial implications and elements of it. You know, a state that expands Medicaid, uh, a state that, that sort of aims for getting 100% of its population insured is going to be a place where all people within that state are going to have access to hospitals and other institutions and are going to be kind of in contact with people who may not want them there. 
Yeah, I think this is actually the conclusion most people are grasping for when they they note the fact that Medicaid, you know, has such a strong there's such a strong bias against Medicaid. People consider it welfare. They they attach all the uh, stereotypes about welfare to it. You know, I think the same type of language is being used about welfare queens uh, and, and all that. That's the way people talk about Medicaid too. And underlying there is from its inception from the in the very beginning of the idea of these two programs that are going to expand care to everyone there was a resistance to that that was simply not proportional to the actual policy i think and uh, and as is the case of a lot of other things uh, when you really get down into it at least some of that's racial animus i mean so cuz one one thing that's tough with regard to the opposition to the affordable care act um and in sort of in terms of thinking about the role race plays into it, is that on one on one hand, uh, you do have this backlash against the law, which is sort of also a backlash against the president. Uh, it's named for, and within that are all sorts of things tied up. Um, one of those things is race. One of those things is sort of like the aversion of many Americans to extended state power, which itself is related to race, but also somewhat attenuated from it. Um, there's a lot of a lot of stuff tied up in there. So how do you? I mean, how do you see the um, opposition to Obamacare and its relationship to race and, and racism? Like, how what 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 do you? To what degree do you think it's like a one to one kind of relationship, or is it sort of a, some a part of this reaction, but can't be reduced to that? I'm I'm just kind of curious. Well, I think it's a part of it. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the the sole or the main animating factor. I'm not sure there is one single main factor animating the opposition. I mean, there, there are legitimate systemic, you know, systematic critiques. Uh, there are people who are suffering, uh, who do have premiums that are too high. Uh, and, you know, I, I think the very first line of critique against Obamacare is its problems. And that's, you know, <laughs> the actual policy outcomes that aren't so great for many households. But also, I do think, you know, um, people think that when you're talking about race, you are flattening the dialogue, right? They think, you know, you're making it a simple, you're, you're race baiting. But I think history shows us that the race is, is complicated and it's injected in so many things that attempting to pull it out and isolate it as this one issue, like you said, this is a, both a federalism issue and a, I think, animus against Obama issue, which both themselves have some sort of racial component. It's all complicated. But I think noting just how these responses have happened in the past, how directly linked they have been to the maintenance of uh, the status quo in the past, that helps us see clearly, you know, I think that race is playing a part and does have some hand in it. Um, and again, you know, I don't know if we can perform the exercise of, of teasing it out completely from other factors. Uh, to, to switch gears a little bit, um, so looking at Trump care and looking at its Medicaid cuts or what it's likely to do at Medicaid, you know, what immediately uh, leaps to me is the damage the bill would do to um, low-income black communities. And I'm thinking specifically communities in the South where I think as of today, most states in the South did not expand Medicaid. So we're already looking at programs that are more limited than they could be. And this seems to look like a bill that would really take an axe to health access for 
a lot of low-income black people uh, in the South, in the rural South specifically. And so I guess my question for you is, you know, I, I look at that and I see not just a reason, you know, another reason to oppose the bill or to critique the bill, but also a reason to think more deeply about how to ameliorate these disparities in access. And so I'm wondering, what what do you think on that score um, for this, for the fact that there is still this wide population of people who even under Obamacare, uh, even if the, even if Medicaid were expanded, would still have um, limited access in so many ways. Um, how, how does, how do you think one moves forward towards fixing that or at least making it better? It's interesting. You know, most of the people I talk to about this, uh, if you look at our nation's public health infrastructure, it is so extraordinarily, extraordinarily influenced by black people from the South, right? Uh, Thatcher, uh, Regina Benjamin, two former Surgeon General, uh, HBCUs, all that. And they all operated within the structure and helped define Obamacare. And I think to a person, their main critique, of course, that it doesn't go far enough, right? And the Medicaid expansion component, while it's certainly not, I think, a, a failure of intent, it, it definitely does have a real measurable policy outcome, which is poor, pe- poor people of color especially. If you actually, the biggest, one of the biggest predictors of whether a state was going to expand or not, and I think you've seen the studies, is, is, is black population, which is, which is fun stuff. So I think really uh, looking at what people were pushing for back then, looking at an expansion of community health, uh, which was actually on the docket with Obamacare as well and was part, is still in the process of, of being implemented. Expanded uh, rural health centers, expanded uh, opportunity for, health ex- for, for other people, people in other health professions who aren't physicians, uh, say for nurses, um, getting more physicians out into the country, out into black communities. These are all things that have to happen uh, in addition to whatever health policy reform uh, in insurance coverage comes on the pipeline. And they also have to fix the insurance coverage. You know, I, I don't think people without insurance in, say, Texas are, really care about what you call the thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they need coverage. And I think the policy analysis of whatever comes next will be judged and should be judged on whether it allows those people access and that I think remains to be seen about everything. I mean, that's that that kind of gets to, and this I feel like this is moving a little way, a little bit away from the healthcare conversation. But that kind of gets to this idea about policy thinking that I've been tossing in my head for some time, which is, you know, people get in these these debates um, and have, especially among uh, people on the left since the election, you know, race versus class, blah blah blah. And in in my head, it seems like the proper starting place for making a policy or political analysis is to sort of identify the group of people who you think are sort of like worse afflicted by society's crosswinds and then say to yourself, what can we do to ameliorate their problems? And so if it's, you know, low-income black women in the rural South, what can we do to make their lives better? And a policy regime that helps them ends up helping a lot of other people who are also touched by one of those wins, but may not be sort of, I'm trying to go with this win metaphor, but I just lost it. So it may not be affected <laughs> uh, by by each individual current. I, I, I get it though. I think, you know, can you imagine if this country, you know, treated 
black women in the South with the same sort of policy centeredness and reverence as they do, say, middle America, what they call middle America. It, it, it would be, like you said, I think from a policy perspective, from a public health perspective at least, uh, the general consensus among public health folks is if you can create a system that can accommodate for and improve the lives of people who are at the lowest end of the spectrum, that's both by class, not just class and race, but gender, all sorts, sorts of other factors. If you can create a system that works for them, you can almost guarantee it'll work for people who make more money, who have more advantages. And, and so that line of thinking, that line of policy thinking is, is definitely reflected, I think, strongly in public health. And lots of people are pushing for that, that type of consideration in our policies elsewhere. So one last question, Van. Um, it's still sort of uncertain whether or not this Senate bill will be passed. We're kind of in this holding pattern, I think Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is kind of looking to see what he can provide to people on either side of the divide, the right-wingers or the somewhat less right, right-wing members, um, see what he can provide to get them to, to, to come on board. But let's say that it does pass and the House kind of adopts it uh, as passed and then immediately gets signed into law. What are the next steps after that? What do you think how how do you think one moves forward um, and does so in a way that may result in a more, not just more equitable system, but a system that, that deals kind of specifically with these racial disparities? That's a big question. But I, I, for one, have been struggling to think about what comes after if Trump care becomes the law of the land, because I think it will be a pretty fundamental shift in the direction of public health and policymaking. And I'm not sure that everyone's really thought through what it, what it means. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I think about this a lot. Uh, it's my job, I guess. But <laughs> first of all, all caveat, I need, I need to know exactly what happens in this revision process. You know, I, I would need to know how much money they're injecting, say, back into Medicaid and all that stuff, because those, those would make a difference. But with the general structure of the law as it is, I think we can predict, you know, uh, it looks, I think, pretty bleak for people, especially living in the South, uh, who might have depended on Medicaid, uh, whose children might have depended on Medicaid, who live in low-resource areas. Uh, there's almost no, I think, serious analysis with numbers in it that, that says life is going to be better for those folks, that says they're going to have more ac access to coverage. But what I also think, and what's been proven time and time again by history, is uh, healthcare is actually one of the, mo the easiest way to sort of activate people to be politically active and then get them in the game. Uh, if you look at the more Mondays in, in North Carolina, one of their pillars was healthcare. And one of the things that, that brought all those groups together with different sort of agendas and uh, different outlooks was they were all pushing for health care. If you look at uh, the civil rights movement, uh, one part I didn't actually put in there, uh, sort of implied it more, more so, was that the earliest leaders of the civil rights movement itself and, and some of the titans in it, and the people I think who laid the groundwork in the 50s uh, for the, the, the big marquee stuff in the 60s, they were mostly physicians and nurses. And, and, and people sort of cut their teeth doing activism around access to care, around being allowed admission into hospitals. And it, it's always been, I think, in, in terms of activism, in terms of people calling their senators and, and, and representatives, healthcare has been number, let's say, two or three on all the issues, I think, 
in recent history. Uh, so if you, you cut a lot of people out of Medicaid, if, if you decrease coverage by what the CBO says is 22 million people, I think you have 22 million people now who uh, may be pushing for something else. Not, and the polls show there's more and more support every day for the idea of single payer, uh, for universal health care. I think we're going to get some more detailed uh, plans uh, from policymakers soon as to how that might happen. Uh, so I don't think uh, this bill, whatever happens, even if it's passed, is going to be the end of really big shifts in national health policy over the next 10 years. I have been speaking to Van Newkirk of The Atlantic. Thank you, Van, for joining me on Trumpcast again. It is always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. And that's our show for today. But before we go, are you following Trumpcast on Twitter? You can find the whole Trumpcast gang on there. We are at Real Trumpcast. That's at Real Trumpcast, and it's the best way to keep up with all the things we have going on here. Also, be sure to tune into the Political Gap Fest today. Jacob Weisberg joined them earlier this morning to chat about healthcare, the Supreme Court, and if you're a Slate Plus member, you can listen to David Plotz, Emily Bazelon, and Jacob talk about the things they think there should be laws for. You can find the Political Gap Fest at slate.com slash gabfest. That's slate.com slash gabfest. Today's show is produced by Jason DeLeon, and thanks for the assist, Dan Bloom. I'm Jamel Bowie. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.